listening to the Bible 126 show. Well, we are in session five of the book of Leviticus, embracing chapters six and seven. And this, con- this will conclude the first major section of the book of Leviticus having to do with the offerings. We're going to be in that area they call the laws of the offerings. Now, we've been reviewing the various uh, 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 offerings. There's five basic ones. We usually say six because we throw into the picture the drink offerings, which are actually mentioned in Numbers 15. But anyway, these offerings, uh, each one of them, while they may seem like tedious rituals for us to be going through, they, they, be, they become enriching and exciting when you realize that every detail is there for a purpose, for a significance that's prophetic, and prophetic specifically about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Once you begin to connect those dots, this book starts to emerge as one of the most important studies that we can uh, undertake in the Bible, because it's the only book of the Bible that's really, in a sense, specifically focused on God's most important attribute. You say that's love. Maybe not so. There's a precedent attribute that precludes everything else, and that's His holiness. His holiness. This is a book about His holiness. His love is manifested because He's found a way to reach out to us Despite his holiness, until you really, until you understand his holiness, uh, you don't fully understand the love that is, 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 uh, demonstrated in his plan of redemption for us. Now, the first section of this book is about the offerings, and uh, we talk about the burnt offering, the grain or meal offering, and the drink offering. In the first group, we have three, three categories. The first ones have to do with the commitment to God, and it speaks of Jesus Christ's commitment to God. The burnt offering, fundamental to all of them. And then what's called the uh, the meat offering, unfortunately, in the King James. A better way, a more meaningful way to describe it in our vocabulary would be grain or meal offerings. And then, of course, the drink offering. The second category is that, which is uh, rather than uh, uh, commitment to God, is communion with God. And that's the fellowship offering, sometimes called the peace offering. And then the final uh, couple are the uh, cleansing, uh, the, the cleansing from God. We have the commitment to God, the communion with God, and the cleansing from God. And the last group are, are two groups called the sin offering and the trespass offering, or perhaps more descriptive, the guilt offering. They deal with more individual uh, uh, issues rather than collective issues. And the sin offering speaks of the nature of sin, and the guilt or trespass offering speaks of uh, sin as a specific act. Well, we've gone through those in the first cut. This, these two chapters we're going to explore in tonight really uh, are the, called the law of the offerings. They're supplemental rules for the priests who are administering those offerings. Each has a particular role to play for the offeror who is bringing the offering. The priest takes it and does various things, and it gives us an insight because they give us a shadow of the reality of what's going on in heaven right now as we speak. These things are acted out in the Levitical terms in the Old Testament, but they also describe or speak to the role of Jesus Christ in his active role as our high priest um, uh, in heaven uh, right now. And to get some, get some uh, inspired commentary on this, you might turn with me to Romans, excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, we have the writer, uh, I, I believe it's Paul, but let's leave that alone for the moment. The writer says, for uh, verse, starting at verse 3 of chapter 8, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, as he about to make the tabernacle for See, saith he, that thou shalt make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. 
And we usually apply that to the physical patterns. The whole pattern of the tabernacle were things that, that uh, Moses was shown. But also, uh, he, uh, this implies that he saw much more than that, and that's what was, that's the real going on. Now, um, now Jesus is not only our high priest, he's in that role, he's also the sacrifice. Both are embodied in him, and, and for that quick review, let's turn to chapter 10. We'll pick it up about verse 5. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, and I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. That's a quote uh, from, of course, Psalm 40, but moving on. Above... Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hast the pleasure in them which are, off, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we are sanctified through offer, uh, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering the same sacrifice which one which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and so on. The book of Hebrews is your inspired commentary on the whole Old Testament, specifically the book of Leviticus. So one of the things I encourage you to do is to uh, parallel our review of Leviticus with your own personal review of the book of Hebrews. And that's just a glimpse of a couple of things pertaining to the chapters that we're about to encounter. So let's move into chapter 6 of Leviticus, which is going to conclude, in the first part, it's going to conclude the rules uh, regarding the trespass offering. And there seems to be here a separate revelation from God, distinct from the preceding chapter where we reviewed some of these things. So there's some duplication, but there's some uniqueness. And the first thing, it lists the examples of sins committed against one's neighbor, but in making the point that when you commit a sin against a neighbor, you're also committing a sin against God. When you do wrong your neighbor, you're also wronging the, the uh, Creator Himself. And that casts a heaviness on what you and I might dismiss as minor sins. When you realize that doing some, uh, doing, uh, uh, indulging in some sin against a neighbor, you're also offending the ruler of the universe. This is what Jesus alludes to in Matthew 7, verse 12, where Jesus says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Very fundamental operative there. You, we tend to make distinctions. You know, we try to, th- in terms of crimes, you know, crimes against God versus crimes against a neighbor. And, uh, we discover that distinction is pretty blurred because when you injure a friend, a neighbor, or whoever, uh, you're also, um, offending the, the creator that holds us accountable. Verse one opens uh, chapter six. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, and let me remind you once again, this is a direct, this is the way most of the book of Leviticus reads. Most of the book of Leviticus is a direct quote from God himself, a direct quote from the Creator himself. Heavy stuff here. If a soul sin and committed trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or have found that which was lost and lieth concerning it, or sweareth falsely in any of these things a man goeth, sinning therein, then it shall be because he hath sinned and is guilty that he shall restore that which he took away violently, or the thing which he had deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered to keep, or the lost thing that he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely. He shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth, in the day of his trespass offering. Long sentence. The word fellowship in here, we encountered that earlier. Uh, the word fellowship there actually refers to a business partnership. The Greek equivalent to the Hebrew term is koinonia, interestingly enough. So I have to point that out because of mystery. And the word koinonia implies a fiduciary relationship. And one of the great tragedies, certainly in the Christian community, uh, is the lack of understanding of what a fiduciary relationship is. Uh, 
Uh, I think one of the biggest shocks I've had going from the secular world, having spent 30 years in corporate boardrooms, where in the secular world, among uh, executives, managers, uh, directors of companies, they understand what a fiduciary is. They may have poor theology, but they have, if uh, the professionals have very high ethics. The fiduciary relationship is one, you have two relationships in business. One is what's called an arm's length relationship. Let the buyer beware. It's the typical transaction you have in a store. When you buy something, you give them some money, you get the product, that's it, it's done, it's a transaction. There's a different relationship between a doctor and his patient, or between an accountant and his client, or a lawyer and his client. It's called a fiduciary relationship where the professional is obligated by the standards of his profession to put the interests of his client ahead of his own. And if you're a manager of a company, or even in a senior supervisory role, you're in a fiduciary relationship. You need to put the company's interests ahead of your own. Now, the reason that's so critical for Christians is that most employees of an enterprise owe their employer no more than 40 hours a week, uh, 40 honest hours a week. In other words, 60 minutes for every hour paid, that kind of thing. But after 5 o'clock, you are on your own. That's if you're an hourly employee or if you're just, just an employee. If you're in a supervisory or management position of that company, you may not realize it, but you can be held to what's called a fiduciary standard where the interests of the enterprise need to be put ahead of your own. And that means that you have to be a custodian of their secrets. That means you're not free to disclose their customer lists or their trade secrets to others. You are a fiduciary, a custodian, a steward of that enterprise. And uh, the higher you go in the enterprise, the more that becomes the standard, and it's very, very crucial. And I say there, this is so important to me personally because in the in the 30 years I've spent in the secular boardrooms, I can recall only one or two cases where we ever had to remove somebody for breach of fiduciary duty. In the Christian community, in only nine years, we've had to do it three times. So it's a, the, the, And part of that isn't that they're bad people. It's that there's poor training. They have no grasp of their obligations, fiduciary obligations. Now, what makes us heavy is that Paul, in Ephesians 6, points out that a Christian owes his employer a fiduciary relationship. That's really what the text implies. An average employee, no, but if you're a witness of Christ, you owe your employer more than uh, 60 minutes per hour. You owe them a commitment of protecting their interest. You're, you, you, you have a different relationship. And it's strange that the Christians held to a higher standard. Our experience, at least mine has been, don't mean to sound cynical, but has been less than that in the, in the 10 year, in the 10 years I've been in the, in the professional Christian community in contrast to the prior 30 years in the secular world. But anyway, so the word leaped out at me, the word, because that's what it's talking about here. We're talking about when you lie to a neighbor and that which was delivered, he gave you something to keep or in fellowship, that is in a fiduciary relationship, or in a thing taken away by violence. These are all ways you could have wronged your neighbors, what he's listing here. Uh, or if you found that which was lost, and you lie concerning it, or if you swear falsely, it's swearing there in the sense, not, not talking about foul language, it's talking about taking an oath before in court for a testimony or whatever, and so forth. And if you sin, then because you've sinned, you not only have to restore what has been abused, you need to add a double tithe. Not just a tithe, it's, 20, it's a double tithe, 20%. And that got us down to verse 5, as I recall. Oh, a couple other things. Uh, by the way, the taken by violence, uh, it means it's like a forced transaction. It doesn't mean at the point of a gun. It's any way that you're exerting inappropriate influence on a transaction. Uh, and the best example of that probably is, is Ahab's acquisition of Naboth's vineyard, probably an extreme case. In 1 Kings 21, we've talked about that before. But, uh, okay, let's pick it up about verse 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord. Now, this is after making restitution, okay? Make your restitution first, plus the 20% tithe to the, to the situation. And then he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation for a trespass offering unto the, uh, unto the uh, priest. Now, the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. You know, the key thing about these offerings, there's two aspects to every one of these things we read. One is how dark, how abusive, how awful sin is. The, the, the very bloody uh, uh, shock. It's intended to be shocking because God is trying to get across to us, the awfulness of sin. That's part A. Part B is, the good news is, there's a remedy for it. You need to understand how bad it is, 
to understand how God feels about it. On the other hand, we also need to realize the good news is God has provided a remedy for this horrible malady that we're all heir to. And it isn't until you have a true sense of sin, how God feels about sin. It isn't until you really understand how awful sin is that you really begin to appreciate how precious our Savior is. People say, gee, I love Jesus. Really? How much do you hate sin? Well, I hadn't thought about that. Well, if you hadn't thought about that, you haven't even come close to how much you love Jesus. And so, but let's move on. The next uh, few verses are about the burnt offering. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and again here, it's a, see, notice it's always a direct quote. It's important to emphasize. This isn't some prophet re-uttering uh, something that the Lord told him to tell you. This is the, a direct quote to Moses from the Lord. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. Here's something to understand that isn't obvious from before. The altar, the fire on the altar never went out. It went out when they moved. When the tabernacle was set up and not being transported from place to place with the witness, well, obviously it was all packed up. But when it set up, the fire at the altar never was allowed to go out. That's re-emphasized again and again and again. And it was to be burning continually. Now that, and each of these things, we can reasonably infer they were there to teach us some specific truths. Well, for one thing, seeing the fire burn all night long, you're in the camp, over there in the tabernacle, the, 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 on the altar, it's burning all night long, all day, all night. That's to remind them of God's eternal justice. God's justice never sleeps, so to speak. God's justice is eternal. It's flaming forth against all iniquity continually. It is never extinguished. It never takes a pause There's no putting out of this fire. And that's what Jesus himself emphasized, interestingly enough. You might want to turn to Mark 9. I hope we're not going to burn up too much time with these digressions, but I think they're important. Turn to Mark 9. It's interesting to to see the same thought uh, emphasized maybe more subtly, maybe more directly, in some of these uh, parables and so forth. In Mark 9, verse 43, Jesus is giving a very solemn warning. Uh, First of all, verse 42 says, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, the children that believe in me, is better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and be cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to not enter into life, excuse me, to enter life maimed than, than having two hands and go to hell. Into the fire that what? that never shall be quenched. It's interesting how often Jesus always alludes to hell, or Hades, or Gehenna, whichever he's talking about, as a fire that is never quenched. Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Or where thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter lame into life than having two feet and be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Thou will I offend thee and pluck it, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm is dieth not and their fire is not quenched. Verse 49, Every one that shall be uh, salted with fire, every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And so on. It's interesting that all the sacrifices were salted with salt. We've talked about that before. We'll talk about it more before we're all through. But uh, it's interesting that uh, this whole idea of enduring forever. Um, remember back in Leviticus 2, verse 13, we talked about the salt, that every, every one of these things had salt in. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, For every one of thy righteous judgments, do what? Endureth forever. God's righteous judgments endureth forever. This idea of continuous eternity is in this fire. In Revelation 14, verse 10, you may recall, it says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Same imagery being used here for the same purpose. That's part of the fire thing. 
But the second thing, it also reminds them that there's a way of escape. Because while that fire is burning, there's an offering on it. That means that there is a qualified victim upon whom the guilt has been put. And, uh, and the flames feed. They're not feeding on you, they're feeding on that substitutionary uh, uh, situation, whichever the offering is being taking place. Now, there's something very interesting I discovered in the Hebrew vocabulary. You know, we miss a lot because we're obviously dealing with translations. Uh, in, in Psalm 20, verse 3, it says, Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Accept the burnt sacrifice. You know, it's interesting. Let me pause for a minute. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel? What was the problem between Abel, Cain and Abel? Abel offered a lamb and God accepted his, his sacrifice, Right? Cain offered his fruits of his labor, and it wasn't accepted. Question, how did they know? If you take a check, an offering check, and put it in the slot, how do you know that God has accepted that? You'd be pretty certain that we'll try to cash it, sure. But I mean, <laughs> but uh, how do you know that God accepted that? See, we don't have, you don't have that direct feedback, do you? Yet Cain, the, the, the narrative in, in Genesis 4, and elsewhere too, by the way, is that they knew when that offering was accepted. And the scholars believe, for lots of reasons, and I won't build the whole case here, we've got, play, we've got a lot to cover, is that God literally took it with fire. When Abel did his thing, he could tell it was accepted. When Cain tried to do his thing, it wasn't accepted. That's why he was so upset, and that's why he was so envious or jealous or whatever you want to say of Abel and ends up killing him. You follow me? It wasn't on some supposition. He knew there was a problem. Now, we, we can only infer the kind of communication taking place because God is dealing directly with these people. But, but, and, of course, the, the story is a summary. Well, there's something interesting about the word accept. The word accept is dashing in the, in the Hebrew. It means to find fat or to take away ashes. When you take an offering and it burns, turns to ashes, the same Hebrew word means accepted. There's a pun involved, but it's a deliberate pun by the Holy Spirit. You with me? I think that's interesting. And uh, because uh, it's, 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 it was the evidence that God had accepted the sacrifice. Now, the main point is that God's justice and His love are both evident in the altar, in the, in the, in the offering on the altar. This also speaks, of course, of the eternal consecration of Christ. And, but it also speaks to the fact that you and I are also to consecrate ourselves like Jesus has. And the best place that that summarizes is the first two verses of Romans 12. I'm sure it's familiar to most of you, where Paul tells in his letter to the Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and complete or perfect will of God. So as we point to Christ in his complete commitment to the... He does everything that the Father has asked him to we need to recognize he's also a pattern for us. That, that is his, God's intent for us. God delights in the continual obedience of his children. And Jesus said in John 8, verse 29, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Well, Christ can say that. I have to confess I can't. I wish I could, but I don't. Many times I intend to, and when the going gets rough, I don't. And I find that I'm not alone. <laughs> but um, this was also the rebuke of Saul by Samuel back in 1 Samuel 15. To obey is better than sacrifice. Remember, Saul did not do what God told him to. You can give sacrifices, but to obey the first time is better. To, to, to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, what is it? What is the work that God has for you and I to do? It may surprise you what that work is. This is the work of God, John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that ye believe on Him, whom He hath sent. The good news: it's an act of faith, not energy or effort in the traditional sense. At the same time, it's also a place that we will fail, but for the assistance of God. And that's what the Book of Romans lays out for you. Oh. Okay.
Now, at this point, God now specifies, you know, God is very, very specific as to what he expects of us and the priests. He specifies in detail the garments that the priests are going to wear when they're doing all this. They couldn't show up, you know, show up in sport coat and Levi's. They're, they're bad, bad example, bad pun, sorry. Um, and the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. So he's got uh, his linen garment and linen breeches. He's to- the flesh was covered, the point is. The whole idea is that the flesh is covered. But it's interesting, it says, interesting, there's a strange phrase in the Hebrew here, the ashes which the fire consumed. The ashes result from something else being consumed. But here's the ashes which the fire consumed. It's an ellipsis, what the, what the grammarians would call an ellipsis, for the material out of which the, uh, the ashes came. The wood, in other words, underneath the offering. And this is a pretty cute trick, by the way, because the fire's never going out, but they're getting the ashes out from underneath. It's the way the thing was designed. But in any case, uh, the ashes were placed beside the altar before being carried out to a clean place. Why? This was to show that the flame had not spared the victim. The ashes proved that the victim was totally consumed, and they made that point publicly by having the ashes visible before they disposed of them. The doom of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin is declared upon them in, uh, as being as turning them to ashes. And that's done by Peter in Second Peter chapter 2. Peter makes that remark. We'll talk a little bit more about this. In verse 11 he says, And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. He actually changes his, he, he, he removes his garments that he wore when he removed the ashes and then, he, and, and then he put on a fresh change. Uh, and this was a continual reminder of the pollution of sin. Even the ashes, having paid for sin, are still considered polluted and contaminated. And, and, uh, and this is the other reason they're fully clothed. The flesh is uh, uh, covered totally. God cannot accept the works of the flesh. And the, the, they're listed in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. If you want to list the works of the flesh, it's a classic list. I'll let you look, put it in your notes and look it up on your own. The fruit of our lives, in contrast, that follow in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. And I'll let you go look through that list. It's a list you're probably very familiar with anyway, but put it in your notes and let's, let's go on. Oh, I want to, I've got to share one other thing. I had a, one of these exciting moments the other morning. I was doing my research for this and I discovered something I think is kind of interesting. In verse 11, it says that they uh, took the ashes outside the camp to a clean place, some spot beyond the camp. And then when they later became permanent temple, it was beyond Jerusalem. There's a term in Jeremiah 31:40 called the Valley of the Ashes. And uh, the location is not known. It's not necessarily Tophet down south of Jerusalem. Some people assume it is, but not necessarily. But this led to a... I happened to find a footnote that you might find interesting. And it has to do with this clean place. You remember back in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 11, it said, He will kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Remember, I think I mentioned at the time, and the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood round about the altar. You also may recall in Isaiah 53, that famous passage that describes the crucifixion in Isaiah. Verse 9, it's speaking of Jesus, says, He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. In fact, we often use that as an example of prophecy because it almost sounds contradictory. He, was, he made his grave with the wicked and it was with the rich in his death. And we usually figure, I know I've always figured, well, he's made his grave, he, he's killed among two thieves, the wicked, yet he's buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb, that's the, with the rich. Well, it turns out, looking at it more closely, he made his grave with the wicked, that's in the plural, which it should be, and with the rich, it's singular his death. Alexander Bonar, one of the classic commentaries, uh, here's a quote from him. He says, A rich man, one of the most honorable and esteemed in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin, and a disciple unexpectedly appears at Calvary. This was Joseph of Arimathea, without exception, the most singularly noble character introduced to us in the Gospels. This rich man had been driven into concealment by plots formed against him by the Jews on account of his defending Jesus in the Sanhedrin openly. Something you miss unless you watch closely, Joseph of Arimathea tried to defend Jesus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. What John, in, that's in Luke chapter 23, verse 51. In John 19:38, it speaks of Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple. 
But that doesn't mean in secret. That's the way it's translated. It's not an adverb. There's one letter different in the Greek, it turns out, uh, that it is, uh, but secreted. He had to go into hiding. Why? Because he defended Jesus publicly. They now had plots against him, so he was in hiding. He he shows up, of course, and we all know that he got the body of Christ and, 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 uh, and he put him in his own tomb. But uh, where was the tomb? In Luke, in John 19, verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And where he was crucified, there was a garden. The garden was at the Golgotha, okay? And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Now, it fascinated me. What Bonar put together was the very spot that criminals are put to death was where James, Joseph's new tomb was. Why? Because he owned the garden. There's a huge garden there. There's a system, there, a cistern there of 250,000 gallon cistern, which means the whole area was under one owner. And there's only one uh, real grave there, right there in the garden, cut in the rock. That's Joseph for his own family. The stony, Bonar makes up, he says that Joseph's new tomb was hewn out of the rock. The stony sides of the tomb, the new tomb, was a clean place. It fits the, the Levitical requirement for being a clean place. Even though it's among the, the malefactors. You with me? Where Jesus was laid, part of Malefactor's Hill. His dead body is with the rich man and with the wicked in the hour of his death. They're both being true by his tomb, see? And his grave is the property of a rich man, yet the rocks which form the partition between his tomb and that of other Calvary malefactors are themselves part of Golgotha. Well, that was his footnote. But something struck me rather strange. Alexander Bonar published his commentary in 1846. It's one of the oldest ones I have on Leviticus. And I went to my resources. We all know about the garden tomb if you visit Israel. It was discovered by General Charles George Gordon, a British officer who was commissioned as a second lieutenant in, 19, in 1852. He discovered the area known as Gordon's Calvary. They, many commentaries derisively call it Gordon's Calvary. It was his crazy idea. That's what led to the garden tomb. The point was, Bonar's analysis of the physics of the grave was done before the garden tomb was discovered. When you go there today, it describes vividly exactly the situation with Golgotha on the hill, and the, it, that's why you can visit. One visit, you can see Golgotha there, and you walk around some trees, and there's the the tomb. You take many; they always present it as just suggestive. The more I've studied, there's twelve different details in the scripture. I believe I I tend to view that the garden tomb is, in fact, his tomb for what it's worth. I just got so excited, so intrigued by that that I had to share it with you. Meanwhile, we go back to Leviticus, and we were down to verse um, 12. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn the wood in it every morning and lay the burnt offering upon it. And uh, he shall burn it there on the fat of the peace offerings, and the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. See, again, the emphasis that the fire never goes out, God's justice burns continually. And that has both a positive and a negative effect. Because John 3.36 says, He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. How long? A long time. Forever. Forever. Well, the next section is, section is on uh, the concerning the meal offering. It'll say meat offering in the King James, but we'll use the term meal because it's more descriptive of what we're really talking about here. And with every burnt offering, both evening and morning, a meal offering was made. We find that in Exodus 29, where it details that for us. In verse 14, This is the law of the meal offering, and the sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord before the altar. Notice the, the offeror stands before the altar rejoicing, but it's the priest that then performs for him. And, uh, and, he sh- and he shall take of this handful and of the flour of the meat offering and of the oil thereof and from the frankincense which is upon the meat offering and shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor even the memorial of it unto the Lord. And the remainder thereof shall Aaron and his sons eat. And the unleavened bread shall be eaten in the holy place in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall eat it. The Septuagint actually is unleavened it shall be eaten. The unleavened bread, uh, the uh, uh, token of it is to the Lord, yes, but then the rest belongs to the priest. Verse 17. It shall not be bacon with leaven. I have given it to them for their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy as it is a sin offering as, it, as the trespass offering. 
Why was it holy? It's holy because the Lord is there. We see that same principle when Moses first encounters the burning bush. Take off your shoes. The ground that you stand on is holy. Why is it holy? Because God is there. In the transfiguration, Matthew 17, uh, the disciple three, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus where he becomes transfigured. And again, it's holy. Why? Uh, 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 Peter talks about that in the second epistle because, uh, because Jesus was there. Verse 18, And all males among the children of Aaron shall eat of it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Everyone that touches them shall be holy. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and of his sons, which they shall offer unto the Lord in the day when he is anointed. The tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a meat offering perpetual, half of it in the morning, half thereof at night. See, the priests also had to tithe. They tied their receipts. And that's an example for all of us in the ministry. Just because you're in the ministry doesn't mean you don't tithe that which you receive. The concept was they tithe to the priest, the priest then also tithed. Actually, they tithe to the Levites, the Levites to the priest, the priest out. But anyway, let's move on. The Omer. We keep running into the Omer. That's a tenth part of an ephah. An ephah is roughly what you and I would consider as about a bushel. So it's call it what? A quart, maybe? Uh, would remind them of the Omer of manna. Uh, which they had gathered daily. Uh, remember in Exodus 16, the manna, they were to take an omer per day. And also they took an omer in the golden pot that was by the Ark of the Covenant. And that's all in Exodus 16. Verse 21, in a, pan shall, uh, in a pan it shall be made with oil, and when it is bacon thou shalt bring it in, and the bacon pieces of the, bacon pieces of the meat offering uh, shalt thou offer for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the priest of his sons that is anointed in his stead shall offer it. Uh, it is a statute forever unto the Lord and be wholly burnt. And every meat offering for the priest shall be wholly burnt. It shall not be eaten. Holy burnt, not eaten. Christ gave himself entirely, completely when he became the offering. But now we're going to shift to the sin offering. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The sin offering is offered in the same place as the burnt offering on the north side. The burnt offering spoke of the person of Christ, holy, free of sin, conceived, of course, by the virgin birth and so forth. Verse 26, And the priest that offer it for, offereth it for sin shall eat it in the holy place. It shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. The sin offering was uh, uh, holy because Christ was free from sin, even though he was made sin for us. That's one of the great mysteries. He was holy, and yet he was without sin. Those are opposites. I mean, they're, they're, holy is without sin, yet he was made sin for us. So those that's a strange, perhaps probably the greatest mystery in the Bible, how that Jesus could be without sin on the one hand, and yet allow himself to be made sin for us. We have no capacity to imagine what that really means. Isaiah talks about it a little bit in Isaiah 55, verses 7 through 9. It comes up in the first opening uh, verses of Psalm 22 as he hangs on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the only time that Jesus didn't call him Father. But my God, why? Because he's in our shoes. Verse 27. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy, and when there is sprinkled of the blood thereof upon any garment, thou shalt wash that uh, whereon it was sprinkled in the holy place. But the earthen vessel wherein it is sodden shall be broken, and she sodden in the brazen pot, and it should be both scoured and rinsed in water. All this uh, dealing with the blood, trying to emphasize the dreadful sacredness of the atoning blood. Verse 29, All the males among the priests shall eat thereof it is most holy, and no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burnt in the fire. The sin offerings were that class of sacrifice that were burned outside the camp. That's exactly what Hebrews 13, verse 11 says, The bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought in the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp, outside the camp, just as Jesus was crucified outside the city walls on the north side. Fascinating, fascinating prophetic modeling going on here. Well, let's jump into Leviticus 7, which wraps this up. The instructions here will continue with the two uh, types of offerings that were more personal. The trespass offering concerning the individual Israelite and the peace offering uh, enjoyed by by the individual within the body of the believers. And the the emphasis continues on the uh, service of the priest. 
a picture of what Jesus has done for us in the past and is doing right now at God's right hand. And that's in Hebrews 7.25. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And that's what we must remember as we, uh, on the one hand, as we get into the heaviness of sin, remember the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's His faith that we rely on. on. He is a faithful. It's His faithfulness we rely on. If we confess our sins, He is just and, fa- and uh, to, con- to uh, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a precious verse that is. Well, let's uh, this will wrap it up on the uh, trespass offering. Likewise, this is the law of trespass offering. It is most holy. And this, this is the same ritual as for the sin offering. He's reminded the sacrifice is holy. The worth and merit of Christ cannot be overemphasized in any of these. And of course, as I said before, unless we, uh, until we see our sin nature and the sinful acts in their enormity and their frightfulness, only then can we see the wonder, the greatness, the holiness of Christ. Now, I like the way J. Vernon McGee says, he says, I'm not calling you a despicable sinner. That's what the Word of God calls each of us. <laughs> it says it all. Verse 2. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the trespass offering, and the blood thereof shall he sprinkle round about the altar. See, again, the shedding of blood was the essential. And we must never allow that blood to become a casual thing. It's intended to shock us. It's intended to continually make us realize that it's by the shedding of blood that we're covered, and the shedding blood of the most, not, not of an animal, but of the most precious person that has ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus Christ himself, his shed blood on our behalf. Verse 3, he shall offer it there with the fat thereof, the rump and the fat that covereth the innards. Remember, fat was the desirable part, the fat belonged to the Lord. And the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and that is on the flanks and the call that is above the liver and the kidneys it shall take away. These are the innards, if you will. The priest shall burn them upon the altar and the offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a trespass offering. Every male among the priests shall eat thereof. It shall be eaten in the holy place. It is most holy. As the sin offering is, so is the trespass offering. This is one law for them. The priest that maketh atonement therewith shall have it. Now we get into a subject that hasn't come up before, but it's very interesting to me. That's the skin. There's one part of the whole thing that is not burnt. Verse 8. The priest that offereth any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he hath offered. This speaks to the, the, the clothing, the covering of Jesus Christ. He's our, he's our, he's our offering. And God is totally, totally satisfied with Christ. He sees us as being in Christ. So we are covered by Him. We are clothed by Him. And when you really understand this, and go back and read Genesis chapter 3, you recall that Adam and Eve, when they became conscious of their sin, made themselves some covering out of fig leaves. God put that, put that aside and made them, covered them with coats of skins. You read that little sentence in Genesis with no other biblical background and you figure, oh, he just did that to give them more durable clothing. No, there's something far deeper going on here. This is intended, he is teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood they would be covered. The Levitical system is the undertone there. Man's first religious act was those fig leaf aprons. Because religion is man's attempt to cover himself. Every religion on the planet Earth has you do something or deny something to somehow reconcile yourself with God. Only Christianity says you can't do it no matter how much you do. God has done it all. God has reached... It's, it, uh, uh, religion is man's attempt to cover himself with God. Christianity is God's covering of man by himself. And this all comes up in the parable of the wedding feast. You may recall in Matthew 22, Jesus has this parable about the guy that has his wedding feast and people won't come. And he even says, go, compel, goes out in the highway and hedges, compel them to come in, then my house is filled. A very, a very, very uh, important, colorful parable. In the interest of time, we'll just summarize it here. Uh, well, we got, maybe we got time. Well, let's go, that's too important. Let's, let's jump into Matthew 22. Let's take a look at this parable. We, we, we can use our time up very quickly if we're not careful, but it's a, Matthew chapter 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. So this is a marriage feast. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Who do you suppose that's referring to? Israel. You betcha. 
Again, he sent forth servants, saying, Tell them who are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. Uh, My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come into the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. The remnant took his servants and, uh, and, and treated them shamelessly and slew them. They slew the messengers. When the king heard of it, he was angry, understandably. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they that who are bidden were not worthy. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as that were found, both bad and good. <laughs> See, we're in there too, guys. And uh, the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guest, now up till now you figure, gee, I, can, I understand that. You get to see the parallelism, except then we have sort of a denouement to this little parable. Um, so when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. Boy, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Again, you see, he didn't have the proper covering. He was there under his clone clothing. The wedding garment was provided by the king who was throwing the banquet. He didn't have one. He wasn't eligible. He was an intruder in, in, the, in the idiom of the, of, of the parable. So, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. The absence of the suitable covering was worse than fatal here. What kind of covering do you have? Whose clothing are you wearing before the throne? Your own? You're in big trouble. No matter how good you are, no matter what you've done, not good enough. No, only, only, the only thing that will please God is Christ. You're either clothed with Christ or you're not. And that's what's behind this whole thing with the skin. Verse 9, the meat offering that is bacon in the, ox, uh, in, in the oven and all that is dressed in the frying pan and in the pan shall be the priests that offered. And every meat offering mingled with oil and dry shall be the sons of Aaron have one as much as another. Now we move to the peace offering. And this is the most extensive of the instructions and it's also the last, so it's kind of important. All the other offerings had to precede the peace offering. The peace offering is a celebration of communion with God. You can't have communion until the burnt offering is dealt with and the sin offerings, all that other stuff is dealt with. Now we have, we can enjoy the peace with God. Verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which you shall offer unto the Lord. It includes the sacrifices of thanksgiving that Psalm 107 talks about. It focuses on the hazards of the sea and so forth, but deals with, with the, the uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving, which is regarded as equivalent to the peace offering. Also vows are paid by the sacrifice of a thanksgiving offering. Verse 12, if he offered for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil, fine flour and fried. This is is the the emphasis is, of course, that it's a free will offering. Now we have a surprise in verse 13. If you've you've gotten the flavor of the Levitical idioms here, we get hit with surprise. Verse 13, besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering... Leavened bread with a sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. Here is one of the rare, uh, relatively, I'd say almost unique places that leavened bread is used. See, in verse 12, it was showing Christ as our peace offering, who is without sin, so it was unleavened. In verse 13, the offeror, it's the offeror who gives thanks for his participation in the peace. And although his sins have been forgiven and he has peace with God, he is still he still has evil in him. Leaven is still present. Peace with God does not depend upon the believer attaining sinless perfection, but simply being having imputed to him Christ's perfection. Remember 1 John 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, as Romans 6 hammers away, sin ain't going to reign no more. Sin will not dominate your life. But it's interesting about this le- uh, use of leavened bread occurs two other places. At the Feast of First Fruits from Leviticus 23, it was a meal offering as well as the Feast of Pentecost. They were leavened. They were not 
specified as unleavened. It's interesting, both of those, in the Feast of First Fruits, Christ is it's a testimony of his acceptance, and also the Feast of Pentecost speaks of it's, it's leavened. It speaks of, of the Gentile nature of that that uh, event, the founding of the church. But anyways, uh, let's go to verse fourteen. And of it he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for a heave offering unto the Lord, and it shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. See, the leavened bread was offered, but not placed on the altar. It was a heave offering. He held it up, made a gesture, and then and then and then the priests received it. It was eaten by the priests. Verse fifteen: The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. There's no delay. It is to be eaten at once. And that says a lot of things. Not the least of which we are to be moment by moment close to Christ. It's a moment by moment walk. It's a it's, it, there's no, there's no delays. There's no, no, uh, no gaps in here. Verse 16. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offered the sacrifice, and on the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten. But on the, but the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. Here's this third day emphasis again. God completed his testimony of the acceptance of his son's work by doing what? By raising him on the third day. It's interesting, and, and he did it incidentally on the anniversary of the new beginning of the flood of Noah from Genesis 8-4, for those of you that have you know, looked at the calendar background of that. How interesting, how precise God is. Verse 18, If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace always be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be imputed to him that offereth it. It shall be an abomination. And the soul that sinneth it of it shall bear his iniquity, and the flesh that toucheth any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burnt with fire, and as for the flesh, all that be clean shall eat thereof. The flesh had to be clean, and the people that ate it had to be clean. Verse 20, And the soul that eateth of the flesh and of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertain unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. See, any unclean person who ate of the peace offering, was excommunicated. There must be confession of sin on the part of the believer if he's to enter into fellowship with God. Many people emphasize this, even such things as taking the Lord's Supper. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 11. If you read from 24 on, you'll discover that not only is it a privilege to partake of the communion, it's dangerous for someone that isn't properly prepared. You sometimes uh, get some of that emphasis from some of the denominational catechisms and so forth. Uh, there is a scriptural basis for that, and it's in 1 Corinthians 11. And it derives, in a sense, from these same injunctions from the book of Leviticus, that we take these peace offerings, they're wonderful, they're joyous and great, but you need to be prepared to receive them, or you're doing it an injustice that is... Um, is bad news. Verse 21. Moreover, the soul that shall touch any unclean thing as the uncleanness of a man or any unclean beast or an abominable unclean thing and eat of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which pertain unto the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. Kicked out of the camp. See, there are no theories of, as to the origin of evil or apologies drawn from uh, the manner in which we were led astray. None of these things can have any effect on disproving the reality of sin itself. And... Uh, there's no excuses. Well, some final words about regarding the fat and the blood again. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Ye shall eat no manner of fat, of ox or of sheep or of goat. The fat of the beast that dieth of itself, the fat of that which is torn with the beast, may be used in any other use, but ye shall in no wise eat of it. Nothing that dies of itself or a beast of prey is acceptable. Verse 5, For whosoever eateth the fat of the beast, of which men offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, even that soul that eateth it shall be cut off from his people. See, what we give to the Lord has to be entirely his, by the way. We cannot draw back any for our own use. Verse 26, Moreover, ye shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be a fowl or beast or of any, in any of your dwellings. 
For whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord said unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, He that offereth the sacrifice of his peace offerings unto the Lord shall bring his oblation unto the Lord of the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the offerings of the Lord made by fire. The fat with the beast shall he bring, and the breast be waved before a wave offering before the Lord. With his own hands, by his own person, each of us. Each of us have to participate personally, ourselves. And the priest shall burn the fat upon the altar, and the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons, and the right shoulder shall you give unto the priest for a heave offering of the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The fat spoke of every deep-seated desire, every inward affection. The heart speaks of love. Uh, the shoulder of power and strength. Those are all uh, identifiable from New Testament references. And uh, interestingly enough, on the high priest's shoulders and on his breast were the twelve tribes. They were emblazoned on the on his shoulder. We're going to get into that later and also on his breast, uh, breastplate. Verse 33, He among the sons of Aaron that offereth the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right shoulder for his part, the wave, uh, the wave breast and the heave shoulder have I taken of the children of Israel from off the sacrifices of the peace offerings and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons by a statute forever for, uh, from among the children of Israel. And this is the portion of the anointing of Aaron and of the anointing of his sons out of the offerings of the Lord made by fire in the day when he presented them to minister unto the Lord in the priest's offering. Literally, it's saying, uh, not this is the portion of it, literally, is this is the anointing of Aaron. This is what's involved in the anointing. Verse 36, And the Lord commanded to be given them of the children of Israel in that day, in, in the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. Now, we've gone through a lot. Of, none of these are ends in themselves. The Old Testament saint was saved by faith just as we are. And that's all through the Psalms, Psalm 4, 50, and 51, and so on. But on the one hand, and yet they must never be as a dull routine or polluted thereby. All these rituals demanded a more perfect antitype. They all are incomplete of themselves. You take away the New Testament, these things are meaningless. Every one of these things start to take on profound significance to the extent they're tied to it and you understand their relationship with Jesus Christ. He's our burnt offering, etc. By the way, verse 37, This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, of the sin offering, of the trespass offering, of the consecration, and the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to offer their oblations unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So we have gone through the first major section of the book of Leviticus, the law of the offerings. And we've gone at it, uh, uh, I hope not too tediously. At the same time, uh, uh, we're going to continue to move right along. In fact, for, for next time, we're going to take chapters 8, 9, and 10 um, the, for next time. We're going to talk about the priests, a kingdom of priests. We'll be talking about the Levitical priests, and yet we're going to discover there's much that we need to learn from them, even though we are not, uh, we are a kingdom of priests ourselves, but not after the order of uh, Aaron, uh, but rather after the order of Melchizedek. But you really won't understand Melchizedek until you understand the restrictions and uniqueness of the Levitical or Aaronic priests, the priests that were descendants of Aaron. But we'll go through the uh, the priesthood. We'll take three chapters. We'll we'll summarize that next time with a, with a few surprises, I think, as we continue this study of what some scholars feel is the most important book of the Bible because it deals with God's most important attribute, His holiness. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you have provided the complete and perfect and effective sacrifice on our behalf in all its, all its dimensions. We thank you that you have gone to such extremes to repair that defect that prevents us from ever even aspiring to that destiny that you have reserved for us, Father, in him. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your Word that you would continue to help each of us to grow in grace and understanding of the incredible gift that you provided us in Jesus Christ. And also, Father, that we might more fully understand your expectations for us, that we might better understand what you would have of us in the days that remain, that we might be ever more responsive to your heart and your will in our lives. Help us, Father, to set aside our own will. Help us, Father, to moment by moment to walk with you in a way that would please you. 
Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father. As we, each of us, this night, commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.